0: And welcome to the second of Practico's not so much a webinar, more a chat between friends, which is Practico's response to the problems created by coronavirus, or Rona, as she's affectionately known in Australia. We moved away from the breakfast meeting with people sitting around a crowded room enjoying making uh, sandwiches to people who know each other rather well. The other innovation in this particular session is that normally the aims upon me have been people who and well-known cost specialists. On this occasion, delighted like to be joined by Marion Smith QC and Paul Darling QC, who would not claim to be cost specialists, although as you'll see, they do know rather costs, but they are commercial barristers who will be giving some insight into costs from the point of view of a commercial litigator, because costs, of course, are one of the major weapons in the hands of a commercial litigator. So it's interesting to have that different perspective on what can be very technical subjects. Uh, I was going to ask both of them first for a sort of overall review of the developments in costs uh, environment over the last few years, probably since the uh, CPR changes made in April 2013 and how they see those changes impacting on the cost aspects of practice from the point of view of a commercial litigator. Perhaps I'd ask Marion to kick off.
1: I think what I've seen taking a broad brush approach is increasingly over the last five years, costs are upfront and central. That's what the client wants to know. Whereas you used to start at the front end of the litigation. Is there a contract? What does it mean? Can I establish breach? Now everyone wants to know, let's just assume, let's just assume there's a claim here. What's it worth? And how much is it going to cost to either pursue that or defend it? And that's just the overwhelming question now that is put right at the beginning. And that's surprisingly, you'd have thought finance directors were always asking that. But no, that has become into sharp focus. And as we're going to talk during this session, that can only increase. Trends, security for costs, much more thought. And I mean, I always come at this also as someone who crosses the bridge between litigation and arbitration. And I think if you're doing commercial or construction work, that's the bridge you do have to cross. And one, the approaching one feeds into another in both. Security for costs increasingly considered, thought about, because in arbitration we've had to think about the jurisdiction to even award security for costs. A complete acceptance of third party funding and working out the implications of what that means. Internationally, where there's been a resistance with champagne and maintenance and the bringing in of a third party funder, arbitration has been the bridgehead in. So we've seen that developing. And that has brought with it an increasing interest in getting access to information. Who is funding? What are the terms of the funding? What are the terms of the retainer? So those will be my, my sort of main... Th- oh, and I, the only thing I would add to that, in the TCC, we tend, to, we have the starting position the cost budgeting does not apply uh, to the big value claims. And that has been increasingly pushed against as a principle, should we be allowing that? When is it appropriate? When will we get the courts to apply it to big value cases? Do you agree with that, Paul, or have I got it wrong?
2: No, I think that's I think that's fair. What I would say is that the obsession has become, much like what you say, how can you reduce or eliminate irrecoverable costs? And, and um, the court, courts are very keen to facilitate that. Parties are very keen to facilitate that. People get, when we have cost budgeting, which is obviously, um, in some claims applicable but the whole sense, sense of which is to confine people to the amount that they're able to recover um, and that's one of the reasons why the indemnity cost jurisdiction has become so important uh, and I've, I've seen people be much more interested in applications for indemnity costs because they're a way to get around cost budgets or, or at most or at least a way of reducing the amount of irrecoverable costs. Yeah yeah but would you
0: also...
1: That what we Sorry, are it's going also to,
0: quite. You're going
1: I was just saying what we have started to see is a return to the debate about whether or not um, alternative dispute resolution should become mandatory and that, that ties in with what you were saying Paul about how do we keep the costs to the minimum and I think we may see a return to the debate about Halsey perhaps not led in the TCC and the commercial court perhaps coming out of the family division first but what starts there May very well spread across.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that the people, individual litigants, are more and more, more and more unwilling to pay their own costs and to bear costs risks. And I think that's the trend that you see, and I think that people are always going to be thinking of ways to avoid costs being incurred or ways of putting your opponent under cost pressure, and that fits with your point about ADR. Uh, people if you want to get a case settled, you're going to use any device you can, so as to avoid paying the costs. And if the other side won't play ball, you want to position them for as many difficult costs arguments uh, uh, they're going to have to cope with uh, at the end of the case. So I think that's very much the trend. And I think one of the consequences of cost budgeting, however, wherever it does or doesn't apply, has been to make a big difference to the atmosphere. It's put costs front and central into the case. Um, whereas in the old days, you would just wait till the end and there'd be a costs order, not even an interim payment order for, for costs, you know. And the first time anyone mentioned mention the vulgar subject of costs would be when you'd had the judgment. But now you've got two, three things that sort of uh, bring it very much to everyone's focus. First is the cost budget. Um, second is the um, uh, summary assessment and immediate payment of interlocutory costs. And third of the provisions for payments on account of of costs when they're awarded. And what that means is that people are very much front and central about costs. I think it's also right that there is still quite a lot of uncertainty and anxiety because budgeting at the start for some of these even small technical cases can be very difficult. And I think therefore people are on the one hand interested in it, but also a bit anxious.
1: Yeah, and I think that that, that that drive for certainty is certainly um, reflected now in, I'm increasingly being asked or increasingly considered, can we in fact impose budgeting on this high value case? Yeah.
0: And do you think that's a good thing? Do you think that's what people want? I mean, that, this was basically the driver of Rupert Jackson's reform on, on cost budgeting. He said, you know, litigation is just another project, more project management, and that's what clients want. Uh, Would you agree with that assessment, which is
2: what? No, I think, I think he's absolutely
1: right.
2: General principles, right, and I think everyone, I think there was a general acceptance of that. Where people worry is the ability to accurately estimate in advance, Um, particularly when you've got experts reports and witness statements. Now, Rupert is a very, very, very visionary and clever man, and we all him a very great deal. I think he's got some really quite clever ideas behind all this because, you know, people say, well, we can't estimate how much the expert's going to cost us um, and therefore cost budgeting and estimation is all very unfair and limiting us and how can we, and it's all a disgrace. Rupert's answer to that would be, well, you know, what we need to do is to establish how much money is proportionate to spend on an expert um, and then, and then fit it within fit fit what needs to be done within that. Of course there'll be a bit of rough and readiness about it but we all know that there are two extremes of cost of dispute resolution one is the six-month trial with ten leading counsel and the other is going around the back of the bike sheds and spinning a coin and between those two extremes you you find the right place and I think one of the beauties of cost budgeting is it helps you find where in that panoply of, co- of costs you can incur your case should come
1: Yes, and what do you think the disclosure pilot, what do you think the impact of that is going to be on budgeting? Uh, It's been introduced as a way of managing the costs of that potentially explosive stage in litigation in in, in what we do. Commercial and construction, it's all about what's in the documents. Now, we've got this new scheme. It's supposed to refine the process, control the costs. What's the feedback? Are you getting the view that it is? Or are you, I mean, anecdotally, I'm hearing it's not. It is just driving the cost
2: up. Well, two, two points. Well, the first um, thing is everyone spends ages on on the cost of getting the disclosure agreed. Secondly, or, or, or ordered, it's, it's like having a, you know, a very heavy specific disclosure application just before the case has started. Secondly, you've then got lots and lots of time spent trying to implement it. Um, and the difference, you know, it's, ones you know or haven't searched for, ones you're searching for, all of that. And thirdly, I mean, I've fought quite a few trials where the disclosure pilot has been used. And it's amazing when there's some critical document that hasn't been disclosed. (laughs) And you say, how come this has not been disclosed? and there's a sort of a cough and everyone says, well, it doesn't quite come within any of the precise requests. So, I mean, I, I'm not a great lover, but I I, but I, I do think that it, it is front-loading costs. Mm-hmm. It's on any basis, wouldn't you say, Marion? It's not the silver bullet to, no. to doc- document problems.
1: It doesn't seem to be. I, and we all know that complaint of front-loading. We've lived through it with witness statements We've lived through it with experts reports, we're now hearing it in relation to disclosure. And I just think that if I'm a finance director looking forward now into the post COVID, well, the first wave, the second wave, what are we looking at?
2: But you see, I, I, I think it's very interesting. It? it ties in with the question about indemnity costs. I mean, cards on table, I, I am always very uncomfortable once I've given an estimate very uncomfortable at not coming in within that estimate. Um, and I, I think it gives rise to all sorts of difficulties and tensions. I've just done a case, a um, very important case for two individuals, um, and we managed to keep within the cost budget um, but A, A, that was very difficult because an awful lot of things happened in the case that hadn't been expected. But I was very, very anxious that we did keep within the cost budget, um, because if we didn't, um, uh, then then the risk of these individuals having to bear uh, elements of the costs. So I think there's quite a lot of tension to be worked out there. I've always, I know this is sort of anathema to costs specialists. I've always found the concept of irrecoverable costs quite an odd one um, in the sense of um, if you're right, why don't you get all your costs? And that's a debate I know that everyone's had had for for years. But I do think that in the the way the world is developing, that is becoming a much more acute thing in the minds of clients, finance directors. And what that does is shifts the risk onto the lawyers. Um, if, 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 if If the lawyers are sort of confined to their cost budget, it shifts the risk onto them. Uh, that may not be a bad thing because that uh, would mean the witness statements get done within an agreed budget but it, it, there, there are quite a lot of tensions to work out there wouldn't you thought
1: yeah i think the bar is having to learn how to accurately estimate
2: i also think that, that, that it's quite a difficult forensic thing for us as lawyers because if you're asked for an estimate early on in a case about which you don't know very much whether you're a solicitor or a barrister the, the the natural instinct is to ensure that you build enough in so as to make the estimate whilst remaining reasonable sufficient um, and before you know what's happening the way in which that ends up presenting the cost budget looks like a very considerable amount of money.
1: I think we've lost Jeremy yes we have haven't we Just four people on it Yeah. Yeah, let's wait for him to dial back in. Do you think, while he's dialing back in, do you think that the introduction was clear enough? Because even second time round, we lost him again.
2: I, I think that we don't say anything about that, that we, we, we get him to re-record it. We? Yeah, yeah.
0: All right, Jeremy? I think that was me cutting out, wasn't it? Because um, yeah. you was, you're yeah. both froze. Yeah. So oh, right. we, can, we can keep what Paul was saying. And just so, so I'll, Jeremy,
2: I'll, 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 I'll just finish off. I'll just Jeremy, finish off the...
1: Can I suggest, can you? Um, is there anybody else using your broadband at all? Are you quite close to the router?
0: Uh, I'm um, within less than a meter of it. Why
2: doesn't okay. Jeremy go off do you... video? What about off video?
1: you can do that if you if, if as a last resort i mean it would be a shame not to see you but yes paul you're right as a last
2: resort you could if cut, it happens again know. then that's
0: what we can do yeah okay okay just i'll 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 finish off Okay. If I say, it comes and goes yeah
2: okay
1: i'll leave you to it
0: you yeah. say- um, we probably ought to move on anyway to. Um, yes,
1: let's move on. Yeah.
2: We can cut and splice. I mean, I,
1: I'm has, sure Deborah's has, brilliant at
2: cutting and splicing. Well, why do you go next? Yeah.
0: One? Okay, well, then I'll, I'll introduce Marion's next. So uh, I'd like to introduce Marion now to talk about the subjects you particularly prepared to talk about today. Which is the question of costs, particularly against so: Jeremy,
1: can I suggest you record that again because I didn't hear the, um, the
0: yeah okay. most of
1: it. Yeah,
0: right. I'll try that again. Um, if not, I can be sort of deus ex machina and, and It'd be nice to
1: keep. It'd be nice to keep you in though because this is a practical yeah. breakfast meeting. Exactly.
0: Well, it, and also, it makes more sense. Um, OK, I'll, I'll, I'll try again. But I'd like to move on to ask Marion Smith to talk about the subject on which there's recent case law of costs against third party funders.
1: Yes, and I won't cover ground that I know has already been covered by Practico, Jeremy, because Robert Marvin, counsel, has already spoken about the Chapel Gate decision. But he spoke before the Court of Appeal had handed down the decision. I'm sure everybody who's listening to this knows what's happened. The Arkin Cap is now just a starting, well, it's not even a starting point. It's one approach. It doesn't apply to all third party funders and all, applying to all their litigation be interested to know Jeremy. do you think it was a surprise to the industry or was no it not like...
0: at all no. we we had a practico breakfast session uh two or three years ago when we asked the exec to that question very very experienced funder and she said no we've, we've factored it into our uh, our funding models for some time now And So no, I don't think it was a surprise, particularly after Rupert Jackson's criticisms, I think they saw it coming and it was just a question of when. In fact, the surprise is how long it took.
1: Well, yes, yes. But I think one of the aspects to put um, this whole debate into context is the fact that throughout the the last decade, in, in this year, around the decision, everyone, every judge is saying third party funding is a good thing. It's here. We're happy with it, we've got a code of conduct, we've got reliable funders, it's it's meeting a real need. It's allowing access to justice and nothing that comes out of Chapel Gate and the the removal of the binding rule, the alleged binding rule in Arkin, undermines that. Uh, So what we've got, what, what, what do I think we can see coming? I've done a quick check. I wanted to see if anybody had started to identify with more clarity what are the elements that the court's going to take into account. Haven't found that. Have found a really interesting, though, sort of pragmatic approach, which picks up on the themes that we were discussing in the earlier part. Uh, A decision in, in, I think it's called, let me just get the, the right name of it. Is it Storm? I'll come back to it. What happened? Sharp and black. Sharp and black. themes to this, I'm going to use the Arkim cap for the purposes of the interim payment and I'm going to say to the commercial parties involved I expect you to sort this out by ADR, short of mandatory. Now what happened in sharp and blank was that the very first decision that's taken in its group litigation order case, uh, 17 million pound payment on account. Turn then to have a look at the position of the third party funder uh, who accepts that they're going to be liable to make a contribution towards the costs and takes two points, liable to the extent that the claimant doesn't satisfy, so several liability, not joint and several, and to the extent that the third party funder uh, actually provided, so an attempt to use the Arkin cap. The decision on costs has to be taken in the light of Chapelgate, and the judge says I simply don't know enough about the funding arrangements to exercise that discretion now. But he says, I do you know this. I know that even if the ARCIN cap were to apply, that is more than the interim payment on account. So I'm perfectly happy to order the third party funder and the claimant make the interim payment on account subject to a right to the third-party funder to come back and apply to challenge that principle. That's my fail-safe. That's very pragmatic. That's, you know, assume, you know, assume against you or assume that I'm wrong. Let's just use that to keep it moving. Uh, and then he goes on to say, now, you can come back to me. We can have a full hearing. I'll look at all the evidence. We'll look at all the factors because everything is now in play. It's a statutory discretion, but your commercial parties, and I expect an attempt at ADR. And I think we will see more and more of that. It'd be interesting to see, does it in fact get resolved? Does the amount that the third party funder should pay get resolved by ADR? We've just lost Paul, but that may not matter. They never
2: lost me, they never uh, this we, 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 we never
1: lose Paul. <laughs> uh, and, the, uh, and the court also said, could see no, no reason at all why the liability should be contingent on the claimant not paying. Joint and several liabilities said that the third party funder was liable at the same time. So keeping the that, that risk allocation there. So I think that what we may see is that that sort of trend, that breaking it down, because we're going to see where a third party funder is involved, that costs are more contentious There's a potential now for more time to be spent in resolving the um, issues. I mean, the cat gave you the answer, didn't it? It wasn't a checklist, but it gave everyone a degree of certainty as to how much the third-party funder was going to have to contribute. We're going to have to live with a little while with a degree of uncertainty. What I would say is that I think people are going to have to do, do the maths, get the evidence together, make sure that they make the right application, that they've got everything they need. We, we ask our judges to make assumptions, to almost at times rely upon an anecdotal belief. I think on this area, don't do that. Let's get the right principles established, the right guidance from the courts. Let's get the evidence in.
0: I don't are we think going to get more applications for disclosure, do you think? Yes, yeah.
1: I think we are. We're we, we already seeing it. Already yeah. seeing it. Um, we've had the, uh, the big um, Akhamedova the family, is it a family law case, is it a civil or commercial uh, chancery type case, huge sums being paid out, tracing to find out where the husband's assets are, where they've gone, uh, attempts there made to get right into the heart of the third party funding relationship knocked back. We have seen um, slight concern Mr Justice Stuart Smith allowing, allow, it's being reported as if he allowed access they didn't.
0: It wasn't contested, really. that's the Exactly.
1: Point. Exactly. Yeah. The whole line that was taken by council um, was, I thought we'd given it. Hmm. Even then, he says, well, look, I'm going to give directions for the, for the information to be provided. But also, if there is a principled objection to the provision of this information, here's the timetable on which we will decide that. So I don't, I don't see the Jala and Royal Dutch shell as being the the opening of the floodgates, as perhaps mm. some reporters are indicating. But are we going to see people asking that question? Access? Yes, of course we are.
2: I mean, one of the things that comes out of all of this, and it comes out of all the current cost developments, is in the same way as some principles are being fixed by things like cost budgeting, we are more and more into the area of judicial discretion. Um, and judges building up expertise and uh, balancing all the various different factors their first point is there are no right answers to any of these questions they're going to be different answers on the same facts because that's just the nature of the beast but secondly the judges are going to want as they develop this um expertise to want to have as much understanding and information as possible remember marion when we first started doing jeremy when we first started doing a summary assessments, you know it was as if people were almost, hold, judges were almost holding them away from this, the cost schedules away from themselves on the basis, you know, how, why am I, how can I deal with this, I don't know anything about it. Now you're seeing the same judges just casting their eye down and giving you a figure. And I, I think you're seeing, whether it's third party funding or indemnity costs, um, much more uh, need for judicial discretion which they were trying to get out of the system with things like cost budgeting, but I'm afraid that's just not working. Uh, So what they're going to do is end up with um, how good your decision being, very often on how experienced and good your judge is.
1: But that's going to create a tension, isn't it? Because yes, it's back to the discretion, but they will want to give the market some degree of certainty. And they will also be aware of the need to reduce the uh, demands on court time. The commercial court's done very well, so has the TCC. They have ridden the COVID lockdown brilliantly. They've kept the trials going. But the judges that sit in those courts get pulled out regularly to go out on circuit to do crime and to do family, to do the wider circuit of material. There you've got backlogs. We've got an an overstretched administration as well. So they'll want to keep disputes out of court time. And the moment you're dealing with discretion, you're into court, aren't you? Um, With a limited right to appeal, so it's got to be a long proper hearing. They will put where they can, they're going to try and give you some guidelines, they may be interested in a new more general approach on third-party funding, there's talk anecdotally about trying to persuade judges to accept a a different starting position, but to give a different cap, a higher cap reflecting the return in part. There'll be a, there'll be a time given to consider it i'm not saying it's going to be accepted because we're constantly balancing aren't we the demands all of those litigators all of those pressures in society which have to be funneled through the same court system the same judges underfunded understretched unloved perhaps at times
0: does this bring us on conveniently to to paul's subject which is indemnity costs because it's precisely uh, there, if you like, that the indemnity cost is seen as a weapon sometimes, uh, yeah. not as a weapon, but as a sanction to use against people who do come to court uh, unnecessarily and waste a lot of courts time.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I think it's very interesting. Um, first point to make is that um, obviously the, the recent decision in Leverjohn, on the Court of Appeal Law, Justice Coulson, is very much the touchstone. Um, it summarises all the cases. It's very good. Um, and... I think it's very helpful. Um, Second point to make is that everyone needs that case because people only often think about indemnity costs in the short hearing at the end of the case. But you've now got um, set down descriptions the court will apply when deciding whether or not to award indemnity costs. And there's a long list of phrases that are okay um, and phrases that aren't okay. Uh, Ultimately, I have to say Uh, uh, and there's also complicated rules about when you can and can't appeal when you can and can't impugn the judge's decision uh, when the court of appeal will and won't interfere i have to say i'm sorry to say that the test is is this a case for indemnity costs Uh, i i think that however you however you you skin it um now what that means is that if the judge just answers that broad question the court of appeal can have a go if it wants to we know the court of appeal if it wants to interfere will Not worry about discretion and if it doesn't want to interfere, we'll rely upon the fact that it's a discretionary decision of the judge. So I think it's a very useful decision. I think indemnity costs are much more on the agenda. Uh, I think that um, that, that it's going to be easier to get them, but I think it's going to be easier to argue about them in the Court of Appeal as well. Um, But I think they're introducing their own little debate and code. The one little thing I would mention from Levin John as I go past it, as it were, um, is the um, Peter, the Lord Justice Coulson relying upon the, on the way in which um, the plaintiff reduced its without prejudice savers to cost part 36 offer as showing that they had little confidence in their claim or that their claim, their confidence had been reduced. Um, I thought that was a bit harsh uh, and I think it, a bit harsh, I think it also means that they, that the courts will, in, will the people have to be careful now. What they put in without prejudice savers to costs correspondence, because I think there's a danger that judges will fasten on that so as to um, bolster their, their views about a party who is um, not behaved as the judge thinks would have been appropriate.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And I yeah, certainly yeah. would be much more, much more willing to make application indemnity costs armed with that case than I would have been before.
0: It has, of course, become much more of an issue, indemnity costs, because it is the way now past the cost budget, it's the way past proportionality. Uh, And in the few years since the Jackson reforms came into effect fully, um, that has made a massive difference. And I think the figures in in the Levin case show that uh, there was an argument about whether the application was just a way round the fact that the um, budget was far too low on the part of the successful party. so uh, people are going to be doing that to get out of their own problems, if you like, created by too, yeah. too low a budget.
2: And very often, that would be the lawyers. I, mean, I, don't, I don't know anything about 11, John, but very often, uh, the, the lawyers will be very keen to make those applications because they remove the difficult conversation that I've been talking about as the difference between budgeted costs and incurred costs.
0: Exactly. You yeah. so can't be saying, no, no, do we really have to make this application? <laughs> oh, I think it would be a very prudent step. Yes, it's David.
1: Can we run with the theme of making people pay just for a little while? Because I think to go back to the third party costs, I think there is a nascent jurisdiction that we just ought to keep an eye on, that um, an order will be made against an expert. It it follows from a preparedness to name and shame experts in the TCC that Paul and I are very well aware of. The, The courts have not held back criticizing experts who've fallen short of the duties to the
2: court i've just, always been a bit uncomfortable about that marion I, I agree with you that's because no. the expert is not there to defend himself no. he's there to represent the party it's a bit like you know the the, the the supreme court the court of appeal having a whack at first instance judges for the way they've done the case because yeah. they don't they often don't know what the circumstances are but you're certainly right that waste that the that third-party costs orders are very much more up the agenda. And let's face it, indemnity costs have the same sort of impact mm-hmm. on the relationship between the paying party and their client. So I think that is, you know, I, I, I think people are much more much more willing to, as you were, put it conversationally, have a whack at somebody, um, yeah. whether it's a criticism in the judgment or whether it's the third-party costs order, I, I do think, or, or indemnity costs, I have to say, I think that the, 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 the small B blame culture, uh, I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but it's certainly happening much more.
1: It, it is, and I think that you're absolutely right to flag up that concern. You do not want to be seen to be hammering the expert who is giving a perfectly proper view, which is just unpopular or, or not adopted. Absolutely agree, and I think that's going to act as a, as a, a constraining or a controlling influence. But what we did see this year, um, or or certainly we've seen recently, is is, uh, the first steps, uh, county court action, but to actually ordering an expert to pay the costs, a substantial sum. There have been one or two minor sums or it had been agreed, but this is £85,000. It's a substantial sum in the context of the case. It's based on quite, I'm not going to use the word extraordinary, but they are um, very particular facts where you've got an expert who has got mental health issues. hasn't recognised that that means he cannot continue to be an expert but it's, it's there it's there and I think in the times we're moving into let's just be aware that it's there let's keep careful control for the purposes of indemnity costs we're having to look very carefully keeping our notes keeping our records this is where the costs get out of control this is the impact I think we should start to do the same thing with we've got an expert here who is potentially rogue potentially not following CPR35, let's just keep, start to keep a record of what loss that's causing us. Yeah,
2: yeah I understand that. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, experts are better now than they used to be. You, mem- you remember the, my great case where I asked the expert in chief, is this your report? And his answer was, well, do you mean now or when I wrote it? Um, <laughs> which I said, well, let's take it in stages. And he said, um, I said, when you wrote it? Oh, yes, I believed it all then, Mr Darling. Um, <laughs> And now I said, have you heard nothing of this? He said, I've just been shown a photograph that shows that my report is completely wrong from beginning to end. So in fairness, he wouldn't, he wouldn't have been uh, attracting the third party costs order because he would only just been shown the photograph. Um, but I, I do think you're right that the people underperforming in, this, in, in these systems, and I think the lawyers are not immune, not going to be immune yeah. from this. And, and there's nothing wrong with that because when you've got processes and procedures and guidelines and rules, if you go outside of those processes and procedures guidelines and rules then um, you need to have a good reason to have done so um, and one of Rupert Jackson's um, many reforms was to you know there the, are the precedents for everything and forms for everything well that may be a pain in the neck but it does actually mean that you have a procedure that you can then that you have to follow and you know the consequences of not following it. it it's one a of common- the problems of course is it's going
0: to create very uncomfortable times for experts who are under attack in this way, possibly quite unjustifiably. It's going to be yeah. you know, an uncomfortable few months. Our oh, issues are resolved. But, they, but they've
1: had that. They've had the increase in the regular, you know, the, the reporting to the regulator. They've had the, these reports, these decisions, these judgments coming out, listing where they've gone wrong. Um, it's, it's a tough time, but they do
2: charge. And let's just talk about that for a minute. Um, I'm not talking about any individual cases. Uh, I've been in some of them, D- w- one I came into on appeal. Um, it's harsh, some of it, yes. um, and um, I have great respect for the judiciary, um, and, but I do think that left to myself, experts have become a bit of open season in the TCC. I think it's improved a bit more recently, And I fear the same may may ultimately end up happening in costs. And I think that's a bad thing because if everyone is um, back covering and alarmed about what might happen, that's not going to facilitate the process.
1: No, it's just going to increase the um, the market for insurance for experts.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
0: One thing is we need to be able to trust the judges to do it properly, which I think for the most part they do. Um, I, I think we won't have a lot of, you know, very strange decisions involving awards against experts. Uh, just anecdotally, I, one of the things I've been doing over the last four years is campaigning about uh, the rights of um, British citizens living in the EU post Brexit. And we had a meeting with um, the European Commission task force dealing with this issue. One of the people there had been monitoring access to justice um, as a high level Commission official for the last 10 years. And he said, of all the countries, we were discussing whether the British judges could be trusted to implement whatever uh, agreement was made. This was before the withdrawal agreement had been signed, and he said, um, "The one thing I will say is the British judges are the best of the lot in in Europe," which was, you know, uh, encouraging. And I must say, does echo my my limited view. I have not seen a lot of the other jurisdictions. I'm glad to say, but uh, it was an interesting from someone with a lot of experience.
2: I think yes. it's very because I think I think I think it is also right that after something of a wobble um, caused by funding and recruitment and all a little hiatus in the system we are now seeing some very very high caliber judges appointed both to the high court and the court of appeal I know less about the the the, the seniorities below that Uh, and I think that that actually does tie in to the costs question Uh, because if you've got a high quality individual judge with great experience who, who is a listener who has an open mind but not an empty one then they are going to, to, to they are going to develop um th- this high level of expertise and apply it fairly the case marion referred to i think the judge was was um, sir alastair norris Lord, justice norris it was. and uh, it, it's a beautiful judgment isn't it 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 it, it um and um One of the other things that comes out of some of the indemnity cost discussions is that the ability and experience of the judge is is very likely to um, um, impact upon and improve the quality of the outcome.
1: Yeah, yeah, it is. And what you always find with the TCC and the commercial court judges is a desire to get it right. Um, And as long as they think you are helping them to reach a right decision, They've got as much time as you need to explain yourself
2: succinctly. I think that's gone pretty well.
0: It has. I think we. Uh, let's let's do it again sometime.
2: Yes, Jeremy. Very nice. Very nice to talk to you. You, know, you are you are the costs guru, uh, and, and to be allowed to participate in the discussion with you, uh, yeah. a dear old friend from Essex Street, is great delight. So thank you very much.
1: Thank you, and and let's let's at one stage think about picking up and talking about costs in arbitration.
2: Yes. There's a big yeah. subject there, costs in arbitration. Very good. Yeah, go. and a
1: and a real a real interest, I think, across the areas that we all deal with to actually us well,
0: some
1: skills. Slot to... that in for
0: another discussion a little further yeah. down the line. Yeah. Okay. Take care. Well keep safe. Well, that seems to be an appropriately optimistic note on which to end this very interesting chat between friends. I want to thank both Marion and Paul very much for participating in this uh, process. It's been really interesting for me and I hope it's been interesting for all of you who are watching. Anyone who has any questions, as we don't have an ongoing chat uh, throughout the the webinar, um, should write in by email to Practico and any questions will be directed to the appropriate person. One of the suggestions that Marion made was that we should meet again, the three of us, to discuss in the not too distant future, the question of costs in arbitration, which is also a massive subject upon which they are particularly knowledgeable. So thank you all for watching and thank you to the other speakers. And we look forward to meeting again virtually in a month or two's time.